Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Karen Bacher, author of the book, The Sounds of Life, How Digital Technology is Bringing Us Closer to the World of Animals and Plants. Dr. Bacher, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be be on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Yeah, I'm a professor at the Harvard Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, where I'm here on sabbatical and otherwise a professor of geography and environmental studies at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. So for the past 20 years or more, I've been working on issues of environmental governance, digital innovation, environmental security, and that led to this new book, The Sounds of Life. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon uh, what inspired this book. I mean, obviously, your, your background, uh, now that I've read it, it really lends itself to that uh, to, to what you're uh, writing about. But what inspired you to write a book about the sounds of life? So it's a great question because it's a very interdisciplinary topic. My own background is highly interdisciplinary. I did an undergrad degree in science and another one in arts. I have a BASC um, So that training led me to work on complex interdisciplinary environmental issues like climate change, which I started working on in the mid-90s. So my my true interest, I think, in, in the environment is bringing together all these different threads that are often treated in separate silos in order to help us to problem solve about our pressing environmental challenges like biodiversity loss. The interest in the sounds of life started about seven years, eight years ago. I've been teaching a really large undergraduate class for the past couple of decades. Um, I get 200 students in the room every year. They care passionately about environmental issues. But every year, the numbers get worse. And there's a lot of ecological anxiety, climate grief. I wanted to present to them a generation of digital natives a space where digital technology, instead of distancing or alienating us from nature, could potentially bring us closer instead, and also a set of tools that, digital tools that could potentially help us solve some of the most pressing problems of our era. And so I started the Smart Earth Project, and the Smart Earth Project is a really large endeavor that seeks to catalog and assess the utility of digital tools to address problems like fugitive methane emissions um, or endangered species protection. And of that huge mix of interesting digital tools, a really interesting set was bioacoustics that not only uh, is a window into the really complex and profoundly amazing world of non-human communication, but also offers us really powerful new tools to protect the environment in a way that we've never been able to do before. And I was just so captivated by digital bioacoustics that I thought the whole world needs to know about it. And um, yeah, and wrote the book. 
I was wondering if you could explain a bit about bioacoustics and also echoacoustics and, and the difference between the two, because it's it's one of those things where when I'm uh, you know making notes about something and it pops up as a word that's not recognized, I feel like it's one that would probably benefit from a bit of elaboration. Could, could you perhaps explain it, uh, give us a bit about what the, the differences between the two are and, and the different approaches that are necessary to uh, be able to hear life uh, in, in each respect? For sure. So bioacoustics is the study of the sounds made by living organisms. And that's been around for a long time. Of course, listening to nature is a longstanding, venerable tradition. But recently in the past decade, the miniaturization of digital recording devices has essentially enabled scientists to be listening um, cheaply and easily all over the globe, from the depths of the ocean to the highest mountaintops, from the Arctic to the Amazon. And so this has created a huge uh, opportunity and, and enormous amounts of data that we simply never had before. So the, the scientists who do bioacoustics, they go into the field, they have the skills of a data scientist, but a training much like, it's sort of like a mix, I like to say, between an audiologist and a music composer, that they they study wild places, they understand a great deal about the behavior of, 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 of uh, vocally active um, species, and uh, they are observing in the field, but also using digital data sets and increasingly artificial intelligence to decode the patterns of non-human sound. Ecoacoustics, on the other hand, are sometimes called acoustic ecology or soundscape studies, entails listening to the set of sounds made by entire landscapes. So you're not listening to a single organism, but to a set of organisms. So imagine standing in the middle of a tropical rainforest. You might hear the leaves rustling, the birds, the roar of a waterfall, a hiss of a snake rustling uh, in the tree above you. The combination of sounds forms what is called a soundscape. And what's really cool about soundscapes is that just by listening, you can learn about, about the functional condition of an ecosystem because an, a degraded ecosystem sounds a lot different than a healthy one. So much like a, a radiologist might look at an MRI scan and be able to discern subtle signs of health and disease, ecoacousticians can listen to soundscapes. So just by listening, they could tell you the difference between a tree farm and a forest. Um, just by listening, they can tell you whether uh, a seemingly intact ecosystem is undergoing some signs of degradation. They've also used these technologies to identify entirely new species. Uh, an entirely new species of blue whale was discovered recently using these techniques. So pretty, pretty amazing technologies. That's one of the things that fascinated me about the book is you describe, as you, as you already, as you already mentioned that, you know, this, we have a long history of listening to nature. It's, you know, part of our existence. And yet what you describe, what you detail in your book is how a lot of this has changed, you know, simply within our own lifetimes, how in the past, say, 70, 80 years, we've really begun using technology in a way to listen to nature. And as you describe, it's, it's, what we're hearing is something that we haven't heard in all that time up until now, that, we're, that we're, th technology is really you know, opening up our ears in a way to, to hear things that, that, were previously, that we previously missed. That's right. So these technologies are, are, are radically new because they allow us to do a couple things. First, they allow us to listen all over the planet 24-7, 365 days a year, even at night, obviously, even in bad weather. 
without human disruption. So we can simply learn a lot more about organisms and ecosystems. But beyond that, and even more importantly, these technologies allow us to listen at frequencies which the naked human ear cannot hear. Most sound in nature occurs either above or below our hearing range. So above our hearing range in the ultrasonic, that's where bats and dolphins echolocate. That's where tree shoes and tarsiers, so rodents and primates, communicate. That's where plants actually make noise. Yes, plants do make emit ultrasonic sound. We cannot hear it, but many animals and insects can. On the other end of our hearing range, so below the lower end of our hearing range lies the infrasonic. So this is the realm of elephants and whales, these deep, long, slow sound waves that are incredibly powerful, travel very long distances and can even travel through soil, stone, buildings. Again, we cannot hear those sounds, but animals can. And of course, they can also hear the ultrasound emitted by our planet itself. If you could hear really well in the infrasound, you could hear the sound of a storm, a tornado approaching. You could hear the calving of a glacier. You could hear the crashing of ocean waves on continental shelves. That's sort of like the a drumming heartbeat of our planet. So there's a continuous sounding of what's called geophony, the sounds of our planet, and biophony, the sounds of li living organisms all around us all the time. And we humans were previously unaware of this, and now we are able to start listening, which has opened up some very fascinating debates about non-human communication and language, undercutting human exceptionalism in that regard. And it's also created entirely new possibilities for environmental conservation. I was wondering if you could uh, begin our examination of what you describe in your book by, by talking about the whales, because I, I was thinking as I was reading this, uh, there was so much in there that was new to me. But whales was is something that that seems to have crossed a threshold. That it's something that we're culturally familiar with. We 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 uh, it's it's a theme in movies. It's 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 something that we uh, we sell you know CDs of whale song, uh, and yet you describe the, the the history of it in a way that 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 shows how much it took for us to get to this point in terms of being able to truly hear whales and 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 what you know we've learned from that i was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon uh what you know how we achieve where we are today with whale bioacoustics yes yeah, so the first two chapters of the book detail this very long um debate uh, and rediscovery of whale sound in the 20th century western science framed whales as silent in, indeed, the ocean is silent. We now know this to be untrue. The ocean is as noisy as the jungle. But there was a long history of privileging sight over sound in, in Western science, and actually a history of prioritizing terrestrial land-based studies over ocean-based studies. So there was this curious sort of blind spot or omission about the global oceans. Now, I should say that, and the chapters go at great length to explain how indigenous knowledge was well ahead of Western science in this regard. The, the chapters tell the story of how scientists were invited up to Alaska uh, and invited there by the Inupiat and taught about bioacoustics. Um, the Inupiat 
um, with a very finely honed sense of bioacoustics of many species, not just whales, essentially crafted hypotheses that the Western scientists were able to test, revealing a lot about whale song and whale sound and whale uh, culture that we had never previously known. But that is a rediscovery. So Robin Wall Kimmerer has a very nice quote in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass. It's something like this. She says, I smile when my colleagues say I have they have discovered X. Um, in fact, this is a redisc- often a rediscovery um, of, of things long known. And this is indeed true with whale bioacoustics. Now, what the researchers actually discovered was uh, a pretty profound set of insights about whale species, which until the late 20th century, of course, were hunted in, in an industrial fashion. Uh, many species had been locally um, extirpated. They, they had simply vanished from many parts of the ocean, and many species were in danger of going extinct. And in the midst of, of uh, you know, an economy where whale oil was still used for things like lipstick and, um, you know, um, car transmissions, there were a few brave scientists like Roger and Katie Payne who began documenting whale song. And uh, indeed, they went on to publish um, what is remains the best-selling um, nature album of all time, their whale music album, which went platinum in the 70s, was played in front of the UN. Um, it became iconic, really, as a representation of all that we had to lose by thoughtlessly um over exploiting nature and led in part to uh, a ban on industrial whaling. So, but underlying that uh, campaign to save the whales was a growing body of scientific evidence. And that evidence demonstrated that whales not only made sound, but their sound was incredibly powerful and incredibly complex. I'll just briefly explain the power of whale song comes in part from their mastery of the way in which ocean water transmits sound. For example, some whale species can dive down to what is known as the SOFAR channel. It's a, a channel about a half mile under the ocean that due to sort of pressure and temperature and salinity conditions becomes a, a, a very ideal channel for broadcasting sound over very long distances. So a whale can dive into this channel off the coast of Bermuda and sing And you can hear that sound very clearly off the coast of Ireland. The sounds can travel across entire oceans. And this is one way in which the whales communicate. And of course, they've been perfecting that communication for literally millions of years. Now, ironically, the the Navy, the US Navy, had just discovered this channel and was using it for um, deep sea, uh, very classified top secret um, acoustic monitoring in the 20th century, but they kept that knowledge secret. So the public simply didn't know. And a few brave researchers like the Paines brought this information to the public, published in top scientific journals, and then started a, a whole research trajectory about trying to understand what the whales were saying. And one of the most powerful findings, which I'm sure most of your listeners will be aware of, is the the fact that humpback song has such complex structure, um, analogous to very complex pieces of classical music. Katie Payne is a classically trained musician, parsed and decoded a lot of these songs, which we now know are uh, transmitted as a form of culture within and between whale communities. And um, 
along with the fact that whales have very big brains and are long-lived and highly social, leads us to, to label um, uh, whales as a species that has culture. So the Inupiat uh, had long known about this culture, and the book seeks to bring together their practices of deep listening and these new practices of digital listening, which enable us to sort of rediscover these, these truths about nature. It was interesting for me after I read those chapters to read your next chapter on uh, elephant bioacoustics because it seems that there's so many parallels. In It's just that we're maybe about a half century behind where we were in terms of uh, our, our, our cultural appreciation of this in terms of elephants, about how they're another species that has been uh, hunted to near extinction uh, for exploitative purposes. But we're beginning to, through the use of bioacoustics, to understand just how complex and rich uh, their, uh, their 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 uh, communications are, and and what that might reveal about you know their 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 lives and and their coexistence. Yes. So elephants, like whales, are uh, big-brained, highly social, long-lived, and have very complex cultures that we didn't appreciate uh, forty or fifty years ago. Katie Payne, by the way, after her landmark study of whales, went on to Africa, where she was the person that discovered elephants communicate in infrasound, like whales. This was not known prior to her research. And her discovery of elephant infrasound actually explains a fairly uncanny ability of elephants um, over many, many miles across the savannah with no apparent means of communication. Elephants coordinate their behavior they pick meeting spots. They are able somehow to sense water and thunderstorms at very long distances. Remember I said that thunderstorms generate infrasound. Um, there's a very small window of time in which uh, a female elephant is in estrus every four years. And somehow across very long distances, males will, will, will literally run miles to find the females at this very narrow window of time. So researchers used to joke that elephants seemed telepathic. It seemed inexplicable. We now know that they use infrasound to communicate over these long distances. And moreover, that infrasound encodes very, very specific information. I'll give you a, an example based on the work of Lucy King, um, a researcher in East Africa, who has done some fabulous experiments demonstrating that elephants make sounds that are specific alarm signals. So they have one sound for honeybee. Elephants are terrified of honeybees. I know it seems odd, the very mighty African elephant tired by, uh, scared by the smallest um, honeybee, but uh, bees are really good at getting into their ears and in their trunks and stinging them on their really delicate skin. So elephants are terrified of bees. And when they hear a honeybee sound, they have a very specific set of behaviors, which includes coming together as a group, dusting themselves off and then running away. So Lucy King was able to elicit um, ele elephant responses um, to a very specific honeybee signal. And she also went on to demonstrate that elephants have very specific signals for humans, and they distinguish between threatening and non-threatening humans. They have a specific sound for men versus women. They have a specific sound for men who are hunters versus men who are not hunters. So they're conveying incredibly precise information, analogous to what we do with words, to the point where elephant, uh, elephants now actually have their own dictionary. The researchers have put together an elephant dictionary. You can go look it up. And this lends itself to um, a broader debate about 
language in non-humans for a long time, the assumption was that the difference between um, human language and non-human language was stark. It was a huge difference, but we we now have evidence that this difference is one of degree, but not really one of kind. Um, Of course, this touches on broader philosophical debates about whether we can really understand the language of other beings that have such different bodies and lives than ours. But one of the messages the book wants to bring to a popular audience and to public debate is that the weight of evidence on bioacoustics across a very broad, broad range of species well beyond whales and elephants is now at a point where I think we can confidently say that non-humans do indeed possess the capacity for complex communication and language And this undercuts human exceptionalism in this regard and raises some pretty profound questions um, about the the rights uh, of these other species and how we view them perhaps as non-human persons rather than as sort of subordinate species. And that gets to one of the uh, underlying uh, themes of your your book, which I I thought was really interesting, which is the challenge of acceptance, the, the, the idea the, the, the acceptance of these ideas, the notion that people that that animals can communicate and, and that they can even communicate across species, is one that that as you describe, so sometimes even professionals have have difficulty accepting. And I'm thinking here about your chapter about turtle bioacoustics, uh, which it, it really begins to broaden. I mean, people, I think you know, we, we've we've in, we've internalized the notion of whale communication. I, I think we've we, we've accepted the notion of elephant communication. But then you start talking about species that are maybe not as developed that that we don't perhaps anthropomorphize much and and so you have you just you open up your chapter on turtles by describing how even a group of of uh academics you know specialists in the field when they're approached with this idea of studying turtle communication balked at the notion that that there was even such a subject to study indeed and one of the amazing things about the book is it, it gradually takes the reader through a journey where we move from species which are fairly close to us on the tree of life elephants and whales are mammals, to species that are further away on the tree of life, turtles, bats, honeybees, um, coral, <laughs> plants. And we progressively discovered together that all of these species are capable of uh, detecting sound, responding to the sound, decoding very nuanced, ecologically relevant information from that sound, and in many cases, making sound that conveys really complex information. They're they're engaged in two-way communication. And turtles um, were one of the species uh, for which scientists had a lot of difficulty believing this could be the case. In the chapter, I described the work of two amazing researchers, Julia Giles in Australia and Camilla Ferrara in Brazil. Both were separately doing their PhDs and were really, really interested in this idea of turtle acoustic communication, but were repeatedly told by their PhD supervisors, by colleagues, by b- members of the turtle research community, herptologists as they're known, um, you know, that turtles didn't make much sound, or if they did, it was only in the throes of, you know, the agony of dying or maybe mating, but there was no complex information there. Uh, simply, it was a topic that was crazy and they would never get their PhDs, um, but they persisted. And what they found is pretty astounding. First of all, the sheer range of noises made by turtles, which are very low frequency, very quiet, and very infrequent. So you really need to be persistent and and really hold your body in stillness if you're going out in nature to listen to these sounds. But once you hear them, 
What's amazing is the diversity of the sounds and their link to behavior. So Camilla Ferrara, for example, studies the, the endangered South American river turtle, Podocnemes expansa, an amazing turtle that unfortunately was um, nearly exterminated um, during the colonial period. Now these turtles, she documented over 200 different vocalization types. And one of the most astounding results is she actually put microphones in the nests of the eggs. She wanted to know at what point after being born, the turtle hatchlings would start making noise. So the, you know, the microphones in the nest were sort of like a control, but to her astonishment, she found that the turtles were actually making noise in the nests before they hatched and specific sounds to coordinate the moment of their birth. Obviously there's advantages when turtles are all born at once, um, reduces predation risk, enhances survival rates. But scientists used to think this was something random, you know, it had to do with the um, just, you know, maybe temperature or cycles of the moon, various, um, phono uh, uh, you know, phonology explanations or, or, or sort of timing and rhythm of the seasons explanations were offered. But in fact, the turtles are deciding when to be born. And not only that, the mothers who scientists assumed had simply abandoned the babies after laying their eggs, the mothers are actually in the water nearby calling to their babies and in, in encouraging them to come into the water. And then the mothers and baby turtles, um, they've also followed these uh, turtles with drones and tags. The mothers and baby turtles swim off together. The mothers show them safe areas of where to hide from predators. So this is the first evidence of parental care in turtles, uh, subverting some longstanding notions in the, the, you know, the community of biologists, but it was met with a lot of resistance because the assumption was turtles simply didn't make sound. And up until this point of your book, you're, you're focusing mostly on bioacoustics. Uh, your next two chapters, though, get more into the subject of ecoacoustics in dealing with two very different life forms that nonetheless perform similar functions in their environments. And here I'm, I'm talking about your chapters on, on reefs and then your chapters on plants more generally. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon how audio uh, study has and, and ecoacoustics have really opened up our understanding as to how these environments uh, interact and 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 you know what we can hear about them. Yeah, so coral reefs are of course incredibly important to marine biodiversity. They function a bit like forests on land. They're a place for they're like a nursery for the young of many species. They provide us a, a safe place for smaller species to hide from bigger predators. So although they occupy a fairly small part of the total oceans, they're they are home to a very high part of the world's marine biodiversity. That's why it's so worrisome that with climate change, changing temperatures, ocean acidification, we're losing so many coral reefs so rapidly. Coral reefs, of course, um, are inhabited by fish, but also coral, which are, are, are animals. Some people call them planimals. They're, they're very, um, wonderfully odd creatures. And one of the researchers I talk about in the book, Steve Simpson, had, had long been studying coral reefs, which, by the way, are quite noisy. So with modern you know, engines and scuba equipment generating bubbles, a lot of that noise gets tuned out. But if you were to free dive on a reef, you would hear... Um, you know, maybe shrimp clacking, um, you'd hear fish making noise, of course, the grasses and other 
Um, plants might make some biomechanical noise. Further off, you might hear species like seals or even whales. So, so coral reefs have a, a kind of symphonic sound. They're like when you walk in a forest and you hear the rustling of the leaves and you might hear the birds. Now, it turns out, this is uh, the first astounding set of findings that Steve Simpson came up with. It turns out that fish larvae can hear those sounds. And he's demonstrated in the lab and in the o- open ocean that fish larvae can hear the sounds of healthy reefs and they'll swim towards those. They prefer that over degraded reefs. And fish larvae can also hear the sound of their home reef. So we've played a number of sounds in a what's called a choice chamber. It's like a, a, a maze um, in a lab. The fish will swim towards the sound of the reef where they were born. We don't know how they do it. Remember, the larvae are very, very small. Um, and they often get washed out to the open ocean, which uh, helps hide them from predators before they swim back. Somehow they can recognize the, the lullaby of the reef. The even more astounding result, though, that Steve Simpson then found came um, just a few years ago. A bunch of researchers approached him and said, asked him, you know, Steve, the the experiments you're doing with fish larvae are very cool. Why don't we try the same thing with coral larvae? And and Steve Simpson's highly technical response was, guys, you're crazy. Coral larvae are just little microscopic blobs. They have no central nervous system, you know. He even found it incredible that coral larvae would be able to hear the sounds of the reef. But, you know, they had all the experimental protocols set up. So they took the same choice chambers, the aquatic tank maze system that they'd done the fish larvae experiments on, and they put the coral larvae in. To their astonishment, the coral larvae could do the same thing. They distinguished between white noise and reef sound. They distinguished between healthy and unhealthy reefs. And then they distinguished between their home reef and some random reef noise. They liked their home reef best of all. So until then, researchers had assumed that coral larvae were just sort of hapless. You know, they're born in these magnificent mass spawning events. They're like underwater fireworks. They wash out to sea in the open ocean. They come back, they swim back. We now know, um, purposively, the assumption was that they were just, you know, haplessly swept around by wind waves currents. But in fact, we now know that they're out there in the open ocean. Somehow they can hear the sound of their home reef and they swim back to it. And this is like, this is analogous to one of the great bird migrations or the salmon migrations, you know, anadromous fish. It's astounding that coral reef can do this because they're essentially microscopic, covered with cilia, but... um, no ears. <laughs> and so this is one of the uh, points that has led researchers to now argue that the ability to sense sound is probably universal across all living species, or at least across all living species that have cilia. So inside your ears, you have little hairs. They're called cilia. That's what enables you to hear me right now. Those little cilia are vibrating as the particle motion of the sound hits them. Then your brain converts that into meaningful information. So cilia are covered with little, uh, sorry, coral larvae are covered with little cilia, little hairs. So that's what they're using to hear the sound. Now, we don't know how they actually process it and respond to it. That is still a great mystery. But the bigger point is that nearly everything in nature is capable of detecting sound and responding to it. And that is what led a new generation of researchers to an even more astounding finding that plants can hear sound. That 
Yeah, that's what I I, I find. It's it, it, it seems by this. I was thinking by this time I get to, uh, by that point in your book, I was thinking that it, it's both you know revolutionary and yet it it makes so much sense. Yes, because it really does seem that it's not that it's a new uh, development. It's just that it's always been there. We're just finally beginning to gain access to it. Yeah, humans tend to believe that what we cannot observe does not exist, and. That combined with the the privileging of sight over sound in Western science meant we simply overlooked a biological fact, which kind of makes evolutionary sense. If you know, even you know, back in the deep history of evolutionary time, even very simple organisms would have had an evolutionary advantage. Um, it, you know, if they sensed sound, because sound can tell you tell you where a predator is or where um, uh, you know where you might find food. Um, so. It makes sense. It just, we had never thought of it being very visually oriented ourselves. So the story gets even more fascinating though when, when you start looking into plants. There's a whole chapter on plants. Um, I'll just give an example of one experiment. Heidi Apple at the University of Toledo has done some amazing experiments with a, a simple plant. It's a model organism in biology, Aridopsis thaliana. So what she did is she just did a playback experiment. Now these are often used on animals, but no one does them on plants. Why? Because we assume plants can't hear, but she did one. A playback experiment just means you play sound and you watch how the organism responds. Now, typically <laughs> in an animal, an organism, you know, the animal might run away or come to investigate the sound or make a sound itself. In plants, you have to look at um, things like biochemicals. So in her case, uh, Heidi Apple was looking at the release of stress chemicals uh, by the plants, defensive chemicals. So she played the sound of white noise to these plants. She played um, music. Uh, Then she played the sounds of insects chewing on the leaves. There were no insects chewing on any of the leaves. It's just the sound of insects chewing on the leaves. And only in response to that sound did the plants release their defensive chemicals. She then, in another experiment, played two different types of insect sound. One is the sound of a predator of that plant, an insect that actually eats the leaves of that plant, chewing on the leaves of one of those plants. And then she played another sound of a similar insect chewing on leaves, but it wasn't a predator. And the plants were able to tell the difference. They only released their defensive biochemicals in response to the insect sound, that was actually a predator. So that is an incredibly nuanced sense of hearing. So it turns out these plants can hear with um, little hair all over their leaves. They're called trichomes. So they must function must like, much like cilia, like the mechanoreception. They're vibrating in response to the particle motion. And the plants can process this information, tell the difference between a threatening and a non-threatening insect, and respond accordingly. And um, that means that their sense of hearing is orders of magnitude more sensitive than our own because they're hearing with their entire bodies. And that gets to one of the things that you're doing with this book that I thought was really revelatory, which is you're, I mean, in some ways, uh, somebody might listen to this and say, well, duh, I play classical music to my plants all the time. I know this stuff. But what you're doing is you're exp- you're revealing just how complex 
uh, listening is for plants and animals and how we're just beginning to appreciate this. And I'm thinking here about your chapter on bats, because everyone knows that bats make noise. They're very familiar with, with echolocation with bats. They're, 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 they, uh, it's, it's, it's something that, that we've kind of, is kind of crossed the threshold part of popular awareness. But as you explain that chapter, what we are only beginning to appreciate is that bats aren't just simply throwing out sounds and hearing what they're, what comes back. They're actually using these sounds to communicate in ways that we're finally beginning to understand. Yes. And so bats are an amazing example of something that was right under our nose, um, but we didn't uh, hear uh, or understand for a long time. Of course, the fact they're associated in Western culture with sort of creatures of the night, you know, um, vectors of disease, blood-sucking vampires didn't help. But to make a long story short, the, the chapter does talk about the discovery of echolocation in bats, which, by the way, was very resisted by scientists, but we now know to be true, their echolocation ability for which they use ultrasound like a finely honed acoustic flashlight is more sensitive than even our finest medical devices. Amazing. But we only recently realized, thanks to digital bioacoustics, that bats also make a lot of other sound that is essentially equivalent to language. So in many of the studies, bioacoustics is combined with little tags. You can put on bats that are a bit like air tags that follows individual bats around some of the studies use artificial intelligence to uh, decode the, the patterns in the data sets. So we're talking about, you know, 15 million vocalizations in a data sets, very large data sets. But what researchers have been able to do is actually study which bat is making which sound to which other bat. And from that, parse their communication. So it turns out that bats remember favors. They hold grudges. They use vocalizations that encode kin and family, but also individual identity. Essentially, it's like they have names. Um, they're obviously competing for food and roosting space, but they're also negotiating many other things. They trade food for sex. They go quiet and socially distance when ill. Mother bats babble to their babies, just like human parents babble to human babies. And the baby bats babble back, just like human babies do, eventually learning adult bat vocalizations and also learning their family songs, which each group of bat um, sings and are very important for finding mates, demarcating territory and culture. So bats have culture, just like whales have culture. And none of this was available to us until the advent of, uh, of digital listening. Now, bats are very close to us on the tree of life. They're one quarter of all mammalian species, but we we still hadn't really understood how complex their communication was. There's a quite a famous paper by a philosopher named Thomas Nagel uh, that spurred a whole debate in philosophy, um, the consensus of which was that even if a bat could speak, we could probably never understand the bat because their umwelt, their lived experience of living in that bat body is so different. But I, digital bioacoustics, that new generation of research, is is refuting Dangle, or at least making, um, you know, calling upon us to nuance Nagel's arguments. Because although you and I cannot, you know, chirp like a bat in the ultrasonic, you and I cannot sing like a whale, um, and we our ears can't really hear those sounds. Our computers can, and AI artificial intelligence can decode the patterns and even more startling researchers are now starting to use that same technology to try to speak back to other species. 
So, so this sheds new light on a very long-standing philosophical debate, and many researchers feel that yes, we can understand what non-humans are saying, and perhaps at some point in the near future, we'll actually be able to speak back to them. And you approach this with, I think, what is an absolutely uh, essential question, which is whether or not we should. And I, I was thinking, for example, when you're talking about the honeybees, it's an interesting question as to whether, you know, we, on the one hand, we have this, you know, we, we have this longing to communicate with animals. We want to talk to our pets. We want to understand what what their experiences are like. We we want to, you know, have that connection. And yet, as you explained, that may not necessarily be a good thing. That that there that this could create all sorts of additional complications and make some of the issues that that bioacoustics are are you know opening up much worse. Yeah, so digital technologies are, of course, both a tool and a weapon. That's a cliche. You know, it's sort of <laughs> deeply rooted in our, our, our myths, you know, Prometheus or Frankenstein or the golem. We create these tools that then create new risks. And of course, stories of speaking with animals are as old as human history. You know, you've got in, um, in the... In the Shahnameh, you know, the Persian epic poem, the phoenix god bird Simurg teaches wisdom to the forsaken prince Zal, preparing him to rejoin the world of men. Or in the Pacific Northwest indigenous um, traditions, Raven, who's kind of a trickster and shapeshifter, a prankster and shaman, um, speaks to humans, teaching humans about balance and harmony while living within an unpredictable natural world that that really sustains us, but also shapes us. And and in the Christian tradition and medieval traditions, of course, talking animals abound. Medieval bestiaries feature animals ventriloquizing human morals. So we've, there's, this is very deeply rooted in, in the human psyche, as you put it, the longing to speak to other creatures um, at, the, at the same time as a, you know, a profound sense of loss um, about a world in which um, we cannot do so. And, and that, that, that impulse, that desire sits in a very ambivalent or uneasy tension with the philosophical view, I would argue as dominant, um, at least in the West, that humans alone among animals possess speech, linked to the claim that humans uniquely possess the faculty of reason. So, so there's a, uh, in opposition to this longing to speak to animals is this assertion that a human language and logos reason truly sets us apart. So these debates over animal language are sort of a touchstone for human uncertainties about our role in the cosmos and our relationship to other beings um, on planet Earth. And so that's why I think these debates are so so rich, but also so fraught. And the ethical pitfalls are great, as you point out. Of course, surveillance capitalism, concerns about privacy, concerns about data harvesting are one very important set of issues. And I, I do discuss in the book the whole framework that's emerging about Indigenous data sovereignty. I think it's very important to revisit our assumptions about environmental data, which we tend to assume we could harvest without consent, that the data belongs to no one. But in fact, there are ownership protocols that should be respected. And in some cases, it, it's important to understand the data might not be able to be collected or would be kept private. Um, the, this whole internet mantra that data wants to be free may not always be appropriate in these cases. I think another uh, key set of issues is also the harm we might do by using these technologies for precision hunting, precision fishing, 
Um, and the harm we might do by using some of these techniques to try to engage in interspecies communication. We may inadvertently do harm in a way we don't fully understand with these very these very new tools. So the, the book delves into these ethical issues in, in great detail. As you explained, though, this is not merely theoretical, that there are actually efforts underway to undertake interspecies communication. I was wondering if you could uh, talk a bit about the interspecies internet and how it's attempting to make this effort now. Yeah, there's several initiatives underway. There's SETI, the Cetacean Translation Initiative. That's a team of researchers at MIT and Berkeley. Um, there's the Interspecies Internet, which was founded by um, a researcher at MIT, Neil Gershenfeld, also Peter Gabriel, the musician, and Diana Rice, a dolphin researcher, and Vint Cerf, the self-proclaimed um, uh, grandfather of the internet, who's a VP at Google. Um, so, as well as the Earth Species Project, which is an, an initiative in, in San Francisco. They're all doing really interesting work, and they're all attempting to use artificial intelligence to transduce signals from humans to non-humans. Um, I would say that with respect to whales, although we've been able to decode a lot of patterns in the sounds, I wouldn't say we've broken the barrier of interspecies communication yet, but those teams are quite confident that someone probably will in the next decade. However, we have already broken the barrier of interspecies communication with honeybees. So, you know, there's this the internet, of course, is a system for connecting people. The early designers thought they were building a system to connect computers, but actually what the internet does is it connects people. And the next phase of the internet's development, these researchers believe, is an internet of species, of sentient beings. And we will learn using the internet to communicate with others that are not human, other animals. Now, the honeybee research is interesting because it builds on a long a long tradition of research um, over a 100 years on honeybee communication. Um, Von Frisch won the Nobel Prize in the 1970s for decoding some aspects of that communication. And since then, we've documented a few hundred different sounds that honeybees make in their very complex vibrational, positional, acoustic language, because they use their abdomens, which have six degrees of freedom, to make all these very cool sounds. And it's, it's really fascinating to decode their language. And what researchers have done is take some of those sounds and encode them into robots, honeybee robots, send those robots into the hive, and attempt playback experiments with honeybees. So if the honeybee robot says, stop, Will the bees stop? Well, yes, they will. If the honeybee robot dances, the very complex waggle dance to tell the living bees about where a new nectar source is located, will the bees go and investigate? Uh, mostly not, but sometimes they will. I would say that this is these are sort of rudimentary prototypes. Sometimes they work. We More often they don't. We don't really understand why they work when they do. But we've got a couple of different teams that have actually successfully conveyed quite complex information to the hive using artificial intelligence-powered honeybee robots, and that research is accelerating. So we are at the brink of interspecies communication. If you like, there's an analogy to the Internet of Things, the Internet of Earthlings, and that creates a whole set of ethical questions about whether, for example, we will use these tools to 
communicate and establish better relationships with other species or whether we will actually use these tools to further domesticate and exploit other species. It's a very worrisome possibility. I, I think we all need to debate. Fortunately, though, this is not the only way that we can use this knowledge for the betterment. In some ways, we can you know, get a, a sense as to how we're going to manage this knowledge in the future with how we use it in the present. I was wondering if you could address what you talk about in your book about how we're, we can use bioacoustics and ecoacoustics to deal with this ongoing problem of, of mass extinction and, and in the ways in which it's currently being used to do so. Yeah, so the the interspecies internet, the kind of interspecies communication agenda, I would say is a fairly small set of researchers. The the bulk of bioacoustics researchers are, are as Mirjam Knornstrahl, she's a fantastic researcher, a bat researcher in Germany puts it, I'm not really interested in what bats have to say to me. They might not want to talk to humans. Um, they might not consent to talk to humans. What I'm really interested in, she says, is what bats have to say to one another. And in fact, what bats might have to say to other species, because we know of some interesting acoustic attunement between bats and plants, for example, or for that matter, between honeybees and flowers. So um, these researchers are actually thinking pragmatically about what we can do with bioacoustics today um, to help stem the the sixth great extinction, this massive wave of biodiversity loss we're currently experiencing. And there are many cool examples. Uh, I'll just mention one. Um, bioacoustics can be used and is being used um, to help protect whales. So off the uh, Atlantic coast of North America, there's a, a very endangered population of North American right whales. Um, there's about 400 left. They were hunted nearly to the brink of extinction. Um, their numbers never really recovered. And they have new challenges they're now facing because with climate change, the very rapidly warming ocean temperatures off the east coast of Maine um, led to a disappearance of the right whale's preferred food source, copepods. So a few years ago, the right whales essentially left their habitat off the coast of Maine. They became climate refugees, like many species worldwide. And they disappeared, actually. People had no idea where they were, and they were located several months later, um, several hundred miles north in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, which is where the very mighty St. Lawrence River pours into the Atlantic Ocean, lots of nutrient upwelling, great place to go find food, except it's also one of the busiest shipping areas in the world. And lots of the whales were getting hit by ships and dying. And in a population that small, that's very concerning. So no one knew what to do. The whales spend most of their time underwater. It's hard to see them. Um, and then bioacoustics offered a solution. There's a wonderful researcher named Kimberly Davies at the University of New Brunswick. She actually runs networks of underwater acoustic drones. They listen and they can triangulate the whale's position with great precision and accuracy. And she convinced the government and the fishing industry to use this technology. And the way it's used is when a whale sings, it makes a sound, it's detected, the sound uh, is is pinpointed, the location is transmitted to ship's captains and regulators in real time. And currently when a whale makes a, a sound, um, they have to stop fishing within quite a large radius. And the ships have to slow down and move out of the way. 
And the very wonderful thing about this is since this system was implemented in 2019, there has not been a single whale death from ship strikes recorded. This may be what actually saves that population. And um, it's fairly inexpensive to implement. So think about it. A, a group of 400 whales singing can control the movements of tens of thousands of ships in a watershed that's home to 45 million people. Essentially what we've established are these big whale lanes in the ocean that um, have priority over shipping lanes. And they're now doing this a similar thing on the California coast called Whale Safe. They're doing something with turtles in Hawaii. They're doing something with um, tuna off the Great Australian Bite. All of these systems actually use satellites, tagging, oceanographic modeling to establish where the endangered species is likely to be. And then it's kind of like creating weather maps that change every day. There's go and no go areas. And that means the humans have to get out of their way. And scientists are now talking about scaling this up to the global oceans, having these mobile protected areas that, that use bioacoustics. At least this can help with vocally active species, um, protecting them wherever they are. Um, across the open oceans. And that's a great example of how we can use bioacoustics for conservation. Now, as you explained at the end of your book, this is a subject that people can read about in your book, and and and, and I hope they do, but the, you, they can also hear these things for themselves. You have this appendix in which you list some wonderful websites where they can, uh, as, as they're reading your book or uh, on a you know, apart from your book, they can hear some of these sounds to which you refer. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about uh, how people can start listening to animals themselves from their own homes, from their their, their workspaces, and, and, and what you're hoping that, that, that such experiences might achieve. Yeah, I mean, l- listening to nature is transcendent and soothing. It's actually really good for your mental health and physical health. So if the one thing people take away from this is that they're going to spend a little more time in nature listening, I I think that's just, you know, it does a world of good. Um, There are also digital apps you can use to help with that. There are cool acoustic apps um, that I do have in the appendix. Um, Some of them help us understand what sounds we're hearing. Um, others we can just listen in, sort of eavesdropping on nature sounds, like whale sounds. There are some live streams of whale sounds that are pretty amazing. You can also be a citizen scientist. There, scientists need a lot of help with uh, decoding these sounds and classifying them. There's a bunch of different initiatives underway where people can actually help out, um, uh, in a way, crowdsourcing some of this knowledge. And then there's a really cool thing people can do with friends or family, um, sound walks and sonic walks. These are actually sort of curated ways of walking through any environment, urban or, you know, uh, rural or out in a wilderness area where you're much more attuned to the sounds that are being made. And again, there's some cool apps that can help people do that. So those are all in the appendix. There's more on the book website. You can get there by thesoundsoflife.org. And if you're interested in the broader digital um, agenda, the smartearthproject.com has lots of examples of, of different types of bioacoustics projects that, that people can check out. Hmm. We appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? 
Yeah, well, I mean, the right now I'm having lots of public conversations. The book is going to be the NPR Science Friday Book Club of the Month selection for November 2022. So we're just kicking that off, which is great. Congratulations. Yeah, I love Science Friday. Um, and I'm also working on a new book. This builds on the arguments in The Sounds of Life, but extends them to other species, uh, asks some questions about how digital technologies could be mobilized to address climate change and biodiversity loss, um, and then asks some questions in the realm of environmental law and environmental philosophy about the implications of all of this science for how we relate to other species. So some of your readers may be aware of debates about legal rights for non-humans, um, and non-human personhood. So I seek to explore how bioacoustics provides a better legal and scientific basis for bringing some of those rights into being and allowing non-humans some degree of agency in environmental governance. You know, it sounds like a fascinating book. I wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you. Dr. Bacher, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks so much for having me.